Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about Poland. Poland has been in the news a lot over the last couple of months. The Polish government has been taken to task by the European Commission under Article 7, who have started proceedings um, to investigate whether some of the constitutional changes which the government have been introducing constitute a threat to fundamental rights uh, in Poland. Uh, And at the same time, the supreme leader of uh, Poland... (laughs) took the opportunity to refresh and reshuffle his government by replacing the Prime Minister Beata Szydło in December with the former economics uh, minister and deputy prime minister um, uh, Morawiecki. And earlier this month in, in January, there was a comprehensive reshuffle of the government and new Polish ministers are now uh, fanning out around Europe and meeting their counterparts and to help me make sense of all of this, what it means for Poland, what it means for the European Union, I am very happy to be joined by ECFR Council member Vajniew Smoczynski, who's also a leading uh, political journalist and the editor-in-chief of Politica Insight. So Vajniew, do you want to um, take us through uh, what's happening, first of all? Well, it's great to begin on the, on the podcast, Mark. Um, we have... Uh... If you observe Poland from abroad, you might be under the impression that there have been some snap elections in Poland and uh, that the ruling party has changed because we have seen over the past two weeks uh, a significant uh, shift in the style of politics, both domestically and internationally, that the Polish government is pursuing. Uh, As you have mentioned, uh, the exchange of Prime Minister in mid-December coincided with the decision by the European Commission to launch the Article 7 procedure against Poland. And clearly the party leadership of law and justice decided that this is the moment to change tack and to start um, a damage limitation exercise, both domestically and internationally, in order to avoid a scenario where Poland down the road of a lengthy EU procedure would get sanctioned one way or another. Um, So Mr. Kaczynski has decided to uh, exchange a widely popular Prime Minister, Beata Szydło, uh, for uh, for the Economy Minister, uh, Mr. Mateusz Morawiecki, um, and uh, within the space of one month, about one month later, Mr. Morawiecki had the opportunity to present his new uh, government. Uh, which he did in the in the first days of January, uh, which which is significantly different from the previous PIS government. Um, the most uh, radical, uh, controversial, and politically damaged ministers have been removed from the government, starting with the defense minister, Mr. Antoni Macierewicz, uh, who was responsible, among other things, for for scrapping the uh, the deal for the multi uh, multi purpose helicopters which were meant to board by Poland from France. Uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Mr. Waszczykowski, has also gone. Uh, Jan Szyszko, the Minister of Environment, responsible for logging in the ancient forest of Białowieża, which also has produced a line of conflict with the European Commission, 
has also been dismissed. And to replace those hardline ministers, Mr. Morawiecki has introduced several uh, former uh, undersecretaries or secretaries of state, uh, younger people, mostly professionals, uh, who have very loose ties to the ruling party. And um, with himself at the helm, he has, as you have already alluded to, started a charm offensive both here in Poland and abroad. Um, Mr. Morawiecki, together with the President Duda, is also going to Davos this week uh, in order to, to improve Poland's image abroad following the decision by the European Commission to launch the Article 7 procedure. So maybe before we look into what this change of government means, is it just style or will there be substantive changes? It might be worth going a bit more into more depth into what the European Commission uh, has been investigating, why these procedures were launched. And uh, for people, we have talked earlier on, uh, you and I, on this podcast about some of the judicial changes which the, the government has, has, uh, has been introducing. But maybe uh, for those of uh, uh, people who have not been following Poland as closely, you can talk about what some of the most controversial things the government has done and why the European Commission has felt um, uh, compelled to, to launch this pretty unique procedure against Poland. Yes, PIS have, has come to power in the landslide election in, uh, in the autumn of 2015, uh, partly on a platform of um, reforming, thoroughly reforming and overhauling the judiciary, the judiciary system in Poland. Uh, part, of parcel, part and parcel of that uh, process, actually the initial stage, uh, was uh, the neutralization of the Constitutional Tribunal. The Constitutional Tribunal in Poland is formally part of the judiciary system, but, but is actually uh, the only institution, aside from the executive and the legislative, which can block new incoming laws being passed by Parliament. And PIS, as it took power, uh, was, uh, was afraid or concerned that the radical uh, reform agenda, which would pass through Parliament um, as a result of their parliamentary majority, might be, uh, might be blocked or might be um, put on hold by, deci by, by decisions of the Constitutional Tribunal on particular laws. Hence the decision to uh, largely neutralize that court. Uh, that was the first stage uh, of the controversy over uh, the judiciary in Poland, which caused um, the uh, European Commission to ask the Venice Commission to investigate whether the specific laws on the Constitutional Tribunal and decisions made about particular judges of the Constitutional Tribunal were in line with Poland's constitution or uh, and the treaty more largely or not. So the Venice Commission is a, a body that is part of the Council of Europe, which is a... It is traditionally tasked within uh, the wider Europe to investigate uh, as an impartial expert body uh, on issues of constitutionality and rule of law and uh, the respect of democratic values. Uh, so it was not just used uh, with respect to Poland, it has, it has been previously used with uh, uh, in, in situations of concern as the rule of law in many European countries. Um, the, the Venice Commission has investigated uh, the state of the Polish uh, judiciary several times because 
new laws kept coming out out of Warsaw. There were new laws, successive laws regarding um, the Supreme Court, regarding the National Judiciary Council tasked with choosing new judges, and finally a big law on common courts, uh, which uh, if you look across all those different uh, new laws uh, or reforms which have been passed, the, the overarching idea uh, is that the executive is taking op an opportunity to largely remove the sitting judges from those different courts, be they common, supreme, or, uh, or constitutional, and introduce uh, new judges into those bodies, judges which, which for the most part are chosen uh, in, a, in a not fully independent way, either by parliament uh, or directly by the executive. Uh, which stands in stark contrast uh, with, the, with Poland's constitutions and uh, also with the values inscribed in Article uh, 2 of the Treaty of the European Union. So over the past two years we had a back and forth between the Polish government, the Venice Commission and the European Commission. The European Commission has pretty swiftly in 2016 started an, uh, an informal, more internal process of review of law, uh, the, the so-called rule of law procedure uh, inside the Commission. As a result of that procedure, it has produced several, if I'm right, until now, fourth, four sets of recommendations for the Polish government, uh, particular measures which the Polish government was meant to take in order to remove those concerns for rule of law in Poland. Um, those um, recommendations were largely, by and large, dismissed. Um, and uh, we found ourselves uh, in December in a situation where uh, the final version of the uh, law on the Supreme Court, uh, in practice removing a large part of the current sitting judges from the Supreme Court, uh, that law has been passed by Parliament and signed into law uh, by the President uh, along with the law on the National Judiciary Council, which will heavily impact the composition of, of Polish courts. The European Commission has decided that it has exhausted the instruments that it had at hand in order to convince Poland to, um, to respect the rule of law and has decided to trigger Article 7 and to launch a formal EU procedure, uh, which is a legal procedure, uh, aimed at uh, ascertaining uh, whether there is a significant risk for rule of law in Poland, and if so, whether Poland uh, should be sanctioned why, one way or another for that. So the reason this matters is because it could potentially lead to Poland losing some of the money that it gets from the European Union or even voting rights within the EU. If you look at it uh, in terms of, of, of hard interest, uh, the, uh, the eventuality, which is still, I think, very unlikely, is that Poland would be, um, uh, would be formally um, called to be in breach of rule of law, and then as a result, in a totally separate vote, uh, the Council of the European Union would have to decide how to punish Poland for that. Um, I, th I still think that that procedure uh, is a very long way down the road. Uh, for political reason, there are, uh, there are not uh, 
I think the probability of Poland being um, finally sanctioned is very low. But there are other uh, ways and measures uh, through which Poland could be indirectly sanctioned uh, for not respecting rule of law. So the reason it, it's, it's pretty unlikely is because there's at least one other member state, which is Hungary, that has very similar problems, which is bound to veto anything which um, uh, led to Poland being sanctioned because it doesn't want to be next. Yes, but we, are, we have to distinguish between the different kind of votes that are, uh, are underway or are, have to happen along the way. Uh, now the issue is uh, at the level of the uh, Council of the European Union and the uh, General Affairs Council uh, under the presidency of Bulgaria is meant to discuss for the first time at the end of uh, uh, February, uh, if I'm correct, at the end of February, it is meant to discuss uh, the case of Poland. It will most probably ask Warsaw uh, to produce explanations and to present its case in response to what the European Commission is saying. And then some way down the road, uh, the, the, uh, the members of the Council of the European Union in practice, ministers of European Affairs of member states, would have to take a vote to decide whether the rule of law in Poland is at risk or not. There are no time limits and no deadlines for that vote to happen, and there would, uh, it wouldn't require unanimity, it would require a majority of uh, 22 votes in order to have Poland uh, indicated as a country in breach of rule of law. And the, the diplomatic offensive that the Polish government is currently running is essentially uh, about delaying that vote and waiting until uh, a, judiciary, a judicial procedure will uh, be completed uh, because uh, simultaneously with trigger triggering the political process under Article 7, the European Commission has also asked the uh, European Court of Justice to decide uh, whether um, uh, the law on common courts in Poland is in line um, with the Treaty of the European Union. And that process could take up to a year. So one of the first things that the, the, the new Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki did was to go to Brussels. He met with um, President Juncker and gave quite a conciliatory interview. His foreign minister then went to Bulgaria and to Berlin to, to try and um, charm uh, people in those places. Um, and there are all sorts of people asking questions about whether uh, it's just a new style, being a little bit less rude about the rest of the world, um, or whether there could be changes um, in substance. I mean, Poland has emerged over the, since the PIS government was elected as one of the, the main ideological rivals to Angela Merkel and to Emmanuel Macron and their more kind of liberal integrationist uh, view uh, within the EU. Do you want to talk a bit about um, what the philosophy of, of the PIS government is and um, whether you think that is changing or is it just that you have more polite messengers now? I think it is, uh, it is uh, a change of style, not a change in substance. Um, 
I think the Polish government uh, has uh, rightly calculated uh, that Poland is running a significant, for now, political, potentially in the future, uh, financial risk. Um, uh, by pursuing both, by both defending the changes to the ju to, to the judiciary, which have all already happened, and uh, at the same time keeping a very harsh kind of narrative towards European partners and specifically European institutions. So, uh, but it is not a change in substance in the sense that uh, I think there is very low probability that the Polish government, the law and justice government, under pressure from European institutions, would take a step back from all the measures, the reform measures that have been uh, introduced into the judiciary. Uh, I think it's essentially, uh, as I said initially, a damage limitation exercise and not a change in uh, political ideology or, or, or political rationale. Uh, the idea of the government is that uh, the reforms that have been passed uh, are to be defended now in front of the European institutions. Uh, and if there are any ways and means to protract the political um, process, which might at the very end result in sanctions, then that needs to be done. And uh, the Polish government is clearly exploring the idea that uh, it would like to convince other or perhaps undecided EU member states that the infringement procedure launched by the Commission in the Court uh, of Justice of the European Union should run its course before uh, the Council takes a political decision on whether Poland is in breach or isn't in breach of rule of law. I think there's a, you know, there are obviously a lot of uh, member states within the EU who worry about this being uh, motivated by regrets about the enlargement process. They see a lot of double standards. You know, when Italy um, was uh, under Silvio Berlusconi's power, there were all sorts of changes to media laws and things like that, which didn't attract the same kind of attention, which what's happened in Poland and, and Hungary um, um, has, um, has attracted. Um, and there are also a lot of other member states that are worried that they could be next if, if Poland um, uh, goes down. How much so solidarity do you think the Polish government feels it can expect from, from other, particularly Eastern and Central European countries? I think there probably uh, is uh, some merit in the fact that there is a certain double standard, uh, that West European countries tend to be stricter about the new member states than they are about their own uh, members. And surely the argument here which runs uh, in favor of, uh, of going after that particular country uh, is that there is not much uh, community of values uh, between the leaders of Western Europe and the current leadership in Poland. Uh, but having said that, I think uh, the big difference is um, that uh, the, the issue of rule of law in, in, in Poland is now debated at the European level, but it is really a Polish issue of the new Polish law being in breach of Poland's constitution, Poland's very own basic law. So in a sense, uh, in, in, in that process, the, the EU, uh, and I think this is the logic among the European institutions, uh, and Timmermans more specifically, Timmermans feels obliged to, uh, to serve as a check and balance 
uh, in a situation where the very Polish government doesn't respect uh, the checks and balances and the rules inscribed in that particular country's very own constitution. So I think there is a, the, the, there is a difference in, in perspective here. Uh, in terms of uh, political uh, logic and strategy and tactics, I think uh, uh, PIS does stand a chance to, to find uh, what does it need in order to, for, for the Council to decide that Poland is in breach it needs 22 votes. Uh, so taking 28 minus 1, which is Poland, you, you, you need to convince about five countries, five, five member states, uh, some of which might be on the fence uh, already, uh, not, either not to press with the vote on Poland or to vote against, uh, uh, against the resolution which would claim that Poland is in breach of rule of law. So I think there is, there is a chance for the Polish government to, to produce such a blocking minority. So can we maybe talk a bit more about the sort of ideology which the, the government stands for? Because you, you were saying that you think this is more uh, a change of style than substance. Um, I'm not sure how many... I think many people understand the, um, uh, the PIS party and Kaczynski in particular have, have stood for a number of quite strong positions on the European stage, by and large... Um, have been sort of Eurosceptic and uh, in the sense of, of believing in defending Polish sovereignty, have been kind of quite sceptical about uh, the moves which the German government made on, on the, uh, to welcome refugees into their country, have been quite firm defenders of the idea of Europe as a Christian community and Christian values and socially conservative. Do you want to give us more of a sort of picture of, of, of what the kind of um, ideology is and to what extent um, Morawiecki, the new Prime Minister, is part of that or is not part of that because um, he's also younger, he's somebody who was a banker before, is quite uh, internationalised um, and so therefore uh, people are asking whether he represents this more kind of nationalistic um, uh, tendency or whether uh, there could be a, a sort of cosmopolitan element to, um, uh, to, to, to him as well. I think um, in terms of ideology, uh, PIS still stands where it stood before in the sense that it is, um, it is a party with, uh, with strong sovereignist convictions, which is, I would say, conservative nationalist or conservative uh, sovereignist. Uh, in the sense that it adheres to a, to a set of uh, uh, traditional, uh, uh, partly Catholic uh, values. It holds uh, an idea of a, of a very strong intervening state, uh, both in, uh, in, in political affairs and in economic life. Uh, and it is, um, it is it, in that sense, it is skeptical both towards uh, the elites, domestic elites, including judges, uh, and to uh, supranational organizations like the EU. And I think in, in terms of ideology, nothing has changed. And I think actually Mr. Morawiecki shares a lot of those ideas with Mr. Kaczynski. What is different is the, uh, the kind of narrative, uh, the language, perhaps the amount of, um, 
um, um, of underlying um, uh, mistrust. Uh, I think there is more mistrust with Mr. Kaczynski towards European institution, and there is more openness to dialogue uh, with the West and with uh, uh, with the EU on the part of uh, of Mr. Morawiecki. Uh, he certainly uh, is a figure who is more uh, outspoken, more, more articulate, more uh, at ease with uh, international partners, uh, and uh, certainly willing to explain the Polish uh, government's position on all those uh, issues, including judicial reform. But that doesn't mean that Mr. Morawiecki is, uh, is keen or open uh, to changing uh, his, uh, his government's position. He is a, a strong defender of the, of the reform of the judiciary. And he also comes from a kind of interesting background. Do you want to explain a bit more about, because, you know, I think a lot of people know he's a former banker, but he, his, he also comes from a family with very strong political convictions as well. Mr. Morawiecki is a, is, a, is a person of contradictions. Uh, because on the one hand he is uh, a member, one would say on the surface, a member of the, uh, of the neoliberal elite because of being a banker. He served eight years um, as the CEO of uh, the second largest Polish bank, being a division of the Spanish group Santander in Poland. He was for a long time not known to have political ambitions and entered politics uh, pretty suddenly in, uh, in early winter 2015, uh, becoming the Minister of Development and later combining the post of Minister of uh, Economy with the Finance Ministry and with the Deputy Prime Ministership. And because he came from the banking sector, many people assumed he holds and espouses neoliberal uh, uh, economic views and is a political liberal at the same time. Um, so many people were surprised that he entered the government and started uh, to say things which didn't blend well uh, with, uh, with neoliberal ideas. He came out as a, as a politician, as a strong uh, uh, defender of an interventionist uh, state. Uh, his background himself is that he is a son of a, of a very conservative um, opposition figure from the 70s and 80s, uh, who was active in uh, Solidarność Walcząca, which was part of the Solidarity Movement, but which, uh, which was in favor of direct action. His father was, uh, uh, was imprisoned in communist times. He himself, Morawiecki, as, a, as, a, um, as an adolescent, what was, was also um, stopped and uh, um, and detained by, by the secret political police of the communist times. So in that sense, he is uh, a person with uh, uh, strong um, conservative views and, and pretty critical of the elites of the 90s, which have conducted the political and economic transformation uh, of the country. But he came out with those political ideas only... Uh, uh, recently in 2015 when he became uh, prime minister. At the same time, he was the more moderate face of the government, uh, the deputy prime minister that was speaking to foreign investors throughout the two years, trying to smoothen the waves caused by the PIS government on the financial markets, uh, trying to bring uh, new investment into Poland and convinced, convincing 
uh, investors that the country is uh, is not going to to pursue a risky budgetary policy. But he also seems to talk to have a, a kind of almost Chinese um, idea of uh, political economy with the state playing this important role that you talked about and has uh, been known to talk about these investments from abroad as, as colonizers. Yes, uh, he has had clearly as a banker already a change of heart uh, in after the financial crisis of 2007-2008 and has become uh, critical of global capital uh, and global capital flows. And uh, one of uh, the intellectuals that he uh, he likes to quote is Justin Ifulin, uh, who was a leading who is a leading Chinese economist and uh, uh, um, an exponent of a school of thought which argues that uh, nation states should take control of their economic development, especially developing countries, uh, by building uh, big state-owned en enterprises and and intervening into into the capitalist economy on a on a large scale. And uh, this is the idea which really runs counter to the kind of thinking that was close to all uh, finance ministers in Poland throughout the past 20 years, uh, which largely uh, thought about economic policy as um, plying the country uh, in a way which would invite uh, foreign investors uh, to, to establish their factories, inviting them with low taxes, and essentially trying not to do anything which would discourage foreign investment from the country and limiting the state's role. And in that sense, uh, Morawiecki, this was the uh, success story of his first two years. He has proposed uh, a, a plan for uh, development for the country. And a large part of his narrative as economy minister was that he will pursue uh, economic development based on domestic capital and strengthening the role of Polish uh, corporates in the face of uh, foreign investment. Because one of the interesting things about um, the debates in Poland is that there's a big focus on almost kind of neo-Marxist analysis about Poland as a periphery country, as being trapped as uh, part of the supply chains of the German economy and therefore not being uh, a subject, um, not being able to set its own future. And this idea of sovereignty isn't just something which is seen as having to be reclaimed from the European Union, but also from foreign investment and, and markets. And in fact, there's a, there's a concept um, about becoming a subject, which a lot of Polish people use in, in the PIS. Is that right? Uh, yes, I think there is uh, probably the, the overarching theme to which, uh, to which um, to which PIS tries to uh, to to appeal is is the is a sentiment of inferiority, uh, both political and economic, uh, that that runs in in the Polish psyche somewhere uh, deep deep within. Uh, and since the transformation of the early 90s in Poland uh, was not equal as transformations usually are are unequal. Um, uh, PIS has managed to amass a votership uh, which in a way uh, um, expects the, the new rulers of Poland to reclaim or give back Poland, both politically and economically, the place that it deserves uh, within, within the EU. And hence the certain harshness that you see 
in, in, in the political narrative uh, across the board of this government. Now, whether there is some uh, justice in the idea that Poland, after 20 years, uh, uh, should reclaim more of a control over its economic destiny, I think, I think there is some, some, some reason in that thinking uh, by Morawiecki. Uh, it's not like he's trying to build a, a, a Marxist economy in the country. Uh, he, he, ha he, he had to realize over the past two years that he is still very much dependent on foreign capital and on the will of uh, foreign investors to invest because domestic investors... Is that right that 2% of the Polish GDP comes from roughly from the European Union and, and the structural funds and, uh, and about 2% from foreign investors as well? year because the contribution to GDP growth each year varies but it's clear that Poland Poland depends uh, on EU funds uh, for for its growth and it will continue to depend at least for for one more decade uh, but I think the idea Morawiecki's idea uh, trying to read uh, what he what he has in mind what comes out of of his many speeches is the idea is to rebalance the interests of foreign capital and uh, and uh, domestic uh, players, and to create a more level playing field for emerging Polish companies, which might want to expand internationally, so they that they can really grow big enough domestically in order to go into those foreign markets, and that they can rely on the Polish government or on the Polish state to be behind their back as they try to expand internationally. So in that sense, I wouldn't say he is Marxist. He was very successful at sealing the, the tax system and at collecting way more VAT over the past two years than the previous governments. Not many people have believed that he would be able to do that. But he actually increased tax collection significantly in Poland, which also uh, made it possible for his government to fund, uh, uh, to fund a lot of social policy, which in turn... Uh, is keeping PIS popular among the wider electorate. So we spent a long time talking about whether the EU would or would not take sanctions uh, against Poland. And I think there are reasons for skepticism that anything's going to happen soon from what you said earlier. But can we look at maybe the other side of the equation? How does this Article 7 process impact on politics within Poland? Is it something which strengthens this sense of inferiority amongst the, the PIS base and uh, actually allows the government to show that it's on the right track and that the European Union is, is hostile to it? Or is it something which could undermine the popularity of the government and create a space for some political uh, countervailing pressures? Well, a good test of that, of the limits of an, of an anti-EU anti or Eurosceptic rhetoric in Poland was May last year when uh, the, the European Council voted on uh, the prolongation of Mr. Tusk's term in the Council. So Poland had a pretty successful former Prime Minister uh, leading the Council and Poland, the Polish government, was not supporting him for domestic political reasons and was proposing an alternative candidate. What came out was a vote of 27 against 1, where the Polish, government, the Polish candidate for the president of the council was voted into office for another term uh, by 27 member states against 1, Poland itself. Th that vote produced uh, very bad reception in Poland domestically. 
in the sense that there was widespread conviction among among uh, polls, not just anti-PIS anti voters, but also among PIS voters, that the government uh, has gone too far in uh, taking a domestic spat uh, to Brussels at the expense of Poland's credibility uh, in the EU. So in that sense, uh, I think you know, up to a point, the government can explain that this uh, procedure is benign because it will not produce sanctions. But if Poland, as a result, will start to be pinched and uh, pointed out across the EU in many intra-European discussions as a country which, first of all, has a problem with rule of law, that will impact self-perceptions of Poles as Europeans, and that might produce adverse results for PS, especially in the 2019 European elections. We have a, a calendar which foresees this autumn local elections, then in early 2019 parliamentary, sorry, European elections, and in autumn 2019 uh, parliamentary elections, in which PIS will either win or lose. And as European elections are usually a sleepy affair, uh, that particular election in Poland will be a dry run ahead of the parliamentary election. And if there is enough political fuel in the form, for example, of a, a running procedure, sanction, sanctions procedure in the council, the opposition stands a chance at reclaiming ground in the European elections and actually uh, gaining momentum ahead of the parliamentary election 2019. And this is the risk which I think made uh, PIS uh, go into this damage limitation exercise with the new government. Okay, so when we look forward to the, um, the future, do you think that um, Poland is going to work with Hungary to, to grow the uh, illiberal, um, more sovereignist uh, group within the uh, EU? Or do you think that ultimately the fact that Brexit is happening, the fact that there'll be less and less money available, that the non-Eurozone members become weaker and weaker in the structures will lead Poland to, uh, to, to become less radical on the European stage and you know, maybe not overturn the domestic judicial reforms that it's made, but um, become more of a kind of uh, good citizen that's trying to get into uh, the uh, the kind of main European Union's projects, rather than uh, acting as part of a of a kind of counter-revolutionary bloc. Counter-revolution is uh, is waning. Uh, we have seen uh, Mr. Orban deciding to accept uh, refugees uh, uh, last week, uh, which is a position which where where uh, Poland is still uh, staunchly uh, against. But so Poland, I think, uh, in view of the of the procedure of the domestic risks uh, in terms of European elections, to which we alluded earlier, uh, will try to pursue an agenda where it will try to cooperate as much as possible with the European Commission on all the other issues aside from the judiciary reform and the ongoing procedure. Uh, so, so as to prove that aside from that, Poland is still. The, the perfect pupil of the EU, uh, trying to create a counterweight which would lessen the risk that um, member states would go hard against, against Poland. The big question is whether 
big European countries have made up made made their made up their mind about sanctioning Poland one way or another, rhetorically or practically. Whether it isn't too late for that procedure uh, or that damage limitation exercise, especially given the fact that Macron is gaining uh, clout in the EU as Mrs. Merkel's uh, power starting to wane, and Macron is pursuing a value-based uh, agenda within the EU, and as a liberal uh, might be tempted actually to sanction Poland uh, in order to show to other countries that there are limits to what member states can do, especially in in, in, in breaking uh, the, the core values of the EU. We'll see how that will also blend with the with the uh, rising dynamic of European reform, which should gain some uh, some pace and momentum in the second part of this year, uh, whether Poland will not find itself sidelined uh, even after um, putting all that effort into limiting the damage from the procedure it has triggered itself. Okay, well, we can come back and see how the, all these things play out. It's been fascinating talking with you, um, Vajniev. Um, one more thing we need to do on this podcast before we end, though, is to talk about our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment? I have, I, I've been reading two, uh, two books concurrently, uh, one which is uh, well-known, and I'm a late reader of that. It is... It is uh, Harari's, um, uh, Harari's Sapiens, the book on, on the source of humankind. But the other, uh, more recent one, is the latest book by Niall Ferguson, The Tower and the Square, uh, about the, um, the dynamics of hierarchies and networks and how they played uh, throughout history. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating book which, which shows how, um, how we attribute too much, uh, too much weight to uh, hierarchical structures uh, as we describe history and perhaps underestimate the role of uh, networks. And since we are living in a very networked age now with all the networking tools that we have, uh, perhaps their networks are even more important these days than hierarchies. So I, I can only uh, recommend it, but it's, it's a long book. <laughs> Okay, great. Those are fantastic uh, recommendations. And uh, for those of you who want to go back and, and look at some of the roots of the tensions between Poland and the European Union, which we've been talking about, I recommend a policy brief by uh, my colleague Piotr Buras, who runs the ECFR office in, uh, in Warsaw. It predates um, the most recent uh, tensions which uh, Vajniev and I have been talking about, but it was because uh, it was published in September last year, but it's called Europe and its Discontents, Poland's Collision Course with the European Union. They will be links to all of these publications on our website, uh, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to us. If you have, please Make sure that you let other people know about it by writing on your Facebook page or ours, tweeting about it, and above all, by racing to the iTunes ratings and review page and giving us a uh, review. It really helps to bring people to the podcast, and uh, we'd be grateful to you for, for, for doing that. But for now, from Vajnev Smoczynski and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFL's podcast is Jonathan Hakenpaar, and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.